welcome. If you're watching online um, in the venue, Chapel, uh, Cactus, uh, we are so glad you're here. We're in a study called Revealed, and last week, uh, Jamie introduced that by talking about the Son Revealed. John 14 is where we are. If you've got a Bible, why don't you take that, uh, go ahead and open it, and uh, we're going to be unpacking this introduction or this part of the upper room discourse where Jesus is trying um, his best, and he is perfect, to help imperfect men, his disciples, understand what was about to take place. He was actually going to go away, and, and they thought he was going to be an earthly king, and he was going to lay his life down, and he was trying to help them understand who he was, revealing the Son. And today we're going to talk about his attempt at helping them grasp who the Father is and how the Father is revealed in them. And then next week, Jamie will wrap it up by talking about the Spirit or the Helper revealed uh, to people. And then when the whole series wraps up at the end of John 14, where the passage tells us that as we grasp God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, the resulting fruit of that is that we have a peace in our lives. It's a peace that Paul would later say in the Philippians is a peace that there's no comprehension for. He couldn't even find a word for it. Later on in that letter to the Philippians, he'd say it was kind of the secret of being content, is understanding um, that very peace. Peace and contentment, really the abundant life that Jesus said he came to give in John chapter 10 and verse 10. And so I think about peace and I think about our world that we live in, and I think about the lives of the people that I know, and I think it's pretty obvious that there's a lack of peace in our culture, wouldn't you agree? And so this passage that we're looking at today is just potent with incredible hope-filled words as we talk about the Father revealed. You know, it's been said that um, your view of God is often, your view of God the Father is often related to your view of your earthly father. And, and I know for some of us, that's been a, a difficult relationship. And so undoubtedly, it will have an impact on how you view your heavenly father. And so tune in today, whatever's going on in your life. If you're here this morning, you're saying, man, I'm just going through it right now. And, and I'm looking for hope. You're not going to be disappointed because the words that Katie read for us in this passage in John are just rich and hope Filled. And so fasten your seatbelts, we'll go through this, but I think it's, it's God's words, Jesus' words, and what he reveals to us that I think you'll find very life-giving, very hope-filled, and very encouraging. And so as we open up to John 14, hopefully you have time to get there now, uh, why don't you pray with me? Father, as we open up your word, we do pray that it'll be your word that will penetrate our hearts. We pray that it'll be your spirit that would speak to us. We pray that our hearts, our lives, our soul, spirit, mind, intellect, body, emotion, will, will be in tune with what's taking place in these precious few minutes that we share together before we dive into life. And so God, thank you for the Trinity. We thank you that you are a God that is so difficult to understand, but you've given us enough to go on, and that you've given us a joy that we can have fulfilled in this life as we look forward to the next life. So Father, be here. Give us understanding as much as you choose to in these few minutes we share together. And again, may you be honored through this time. We pray in your son's name. Amen. 
The Father revealed, John chapter 14, and Jesus is gonna say some words about that, but before we get to the specific passage, if you've been around church long enough, you're gonna know that the Father is revealed in a lot of different ways. And one of the ways that it doesn't take you too long to figure out, in fact, any person living long enough as they go outside and look around them, they would realize that there's something about nature or creation that reveals the Father. And so even before we get to Jesus' words here, one of the things we understand about the Father is that the very creation around us, around us speaks to that. Look what Paul said to the Romans in Romans 1. He said, for his invisible attributes, things about God that we can't see, namely his eternal power, divine nature, and look at this, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Paul is talking about just seeing things. And it, though it's another sermon for another day, but isn't it incredible if you just look at a little piece of creation? I know that we're so busy that oftentimes it's difficult to stop and just look, but you look at a leaf. You look at all the veins in a leaf and you say, wow, that's incredible. This leaf reveals the beauty of a creator, nature. Creation reveals the Father. I, before we moved here five years ago, my wife and I and our family lived in Northern California. We lived right on the coast. I used to love taking my truck and just parking it right on a cliff during a storm and just watching the waves just batter the shore and just seeing the power of an awesome God in creation. You don't have to look far again to realize that we have night and day. We have four seasons, well, one in Scottsdale. But if you live anywhere north, You'd know that the perfect tilt of the world, the spinning of it on its axes, creates the four seasons we have, the order that we have that points to a God that's got to be there. Paul would say that the evidence in creation is so significant that it renders insufficient, it renders the, the reader inexcusable to deny his existence. And so we see the Father revealed in creation. It's a beautiful thing, it's powerful. And any, any person who lives and breathes has got to acknowledge there's so much more. And yet, when we look at creation, one of the things that it doesn't really reveal well is the holiness of God, some of God's eternal attributes. And so another way that the Father is revealed is right here in the word that you have. 66 books canonized into the Holy Bible that we have today. And from Genesis to Revelation, we see God revealed in its pages. We see his character come out. In the Old Testament, in the Pentateuch, God gives his laws to govern his people. His followers are given expectations to fulfill as they faithfully follow him. In its pages, we can learn about our father and the kind of life that he wants to us to live. Paul would say to Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed, revealing God. It's profitable for teaching and reproof, correction for training in righteousness. And so we see God revealed in the natural order of things. We see God revealed in the pages of scripture and that it brings us to our passage today. It's, it's interesting about God though that some have said, boy, I wish that God would just reveal everything to me. Have you been there? There's a passage in Deuteronomy, it was Moses is uh, leading God's people and giving them the law that gives us an interesting thought about the revelation of the Father. Deuteronomy 29, 29, some of you may know that verse, says that the, the secret things belong to the Father, but the things that are revealed belong to us. 
And so there are some things that we're just never gonna get this side of heaven about God, but in nature and in his word and in life, he has revealed enough for us. Why doesn't God reveal everything for us? Well, remember, God is unfathomable. He is infinite. He is omnipotent. He's omniscient. He is all-knowing. He's all-powerful, as I mentioned, and we're not. We're finite created creatures. If God were to pull the curtain back and reveal everything of who he is, it would probably literally blow our minds. The few times that he revealed himself in scripture to Moses, he even had to have a veil over his face that God, we cannot see God and live to talk about it. And so we come to this passage that Katie read for us in John chapter 14, and Jamie mentioned that in Thomas's kind of questioning, there were four movements that Jesus moves from belief in the Father and God and in him to Thomas's question, the third movement, and Jesus ends that, that portion of scripture by saying to Thomas, I am the way. I am the way. And so similarly in verses seven through 15, we see movement. It's not so much about belief, but Jesus is gonna direct the, the disciples' movement to knowing God, knowing the Father. And then Philip's gonna come up with the question, not really a question, but a statement, really. And then Jesus, again, is gonna point to the I am. This time, not the way, but he's saying, I am, literally, the Father. You see, the, the, you can't imagine, if you were sitting there with Jesus and trying to fathom what we know 2,000 years later, looking back, you gotta know how difficult it was. They're just starting to see that Jesus is the way to God. He just explained that to Thomas. And so Philip comes up with a logical response. Okay, if you are God, if you are the way to God, and you're saying you and the Father are one, he's asking a very logical question. Show us God. Just show us the Father. We get that you're the way. We get that we're following you. We believe that you're the way to the Father. So now just show us the Father. We wanna see something tangible. And Jesus, again, like he did with Thomas, he points out that, you know, you're not quite getting it. Aren't you glad 2,000 years later we get it all? We get it? We, we don't. In some ways, we're just never gonna fully understand, as I mentioned, this side of heaven. And a sermon, you know, I was thinking about that this week. You know, we elevate a sermon to something we all come to, but re it really is man's vain attempt, not totally vain, to try to explain what can't be fully understood. But it's enough. We try to point people to Christ. But what I love about what God is, how God has revealed himself in nature and the Bible and through times that we gather like this, you know what, he's given us enough to kind of pique our curiosity. Don't you find that when you sense something happening, you look at creation, you kind of want to know a little bit more. And so our curiosity is piqued. And it stirs in us a thirst to know stuff. And it's the very thirst that drives us to figure out why are we here? What is our, our purpose? Where did we come from and where are we going? And this thirst drives us to seek the truth and that's a good thing because it's designed by God that we would seek for him and we would strive to know him and it's a good thing. And so in this passage, just like last week, Jesus reveals three things about the Father here. And if you're taking notes, the first point in your outline is this. I wanna move through the first two, but settle on the last one. I think you're gonna find very meaningful. And the first one is that Jesus claims that he is the evidence of the Father, that he is the evidence of the Father. Scripture has taught us in the beginning of John that Jesus was the living word. He was with God in the very beginning. He is the full revelation of God. You have a Father 
who has created humanity and he wants them to understand his love. And so he enfolds that in the, in the, in the way of a baby wrapping him in flesh so that man could see God's love. And Jesus said in John 14, seven to Philip, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. And so the, the, the Christian journey is not about trying to open the Bible and learn facts about God as if we've got a science book out here with, with words on it that says, here's God, here's the other parts, and then we you know, acknowledge or academically acquiesce to understanding God. No, we seek a God to know him, not just, again, in the academic way, but in a way that we relate to him, as Jamie is saying, to us regularly so that we might reveal him in the way that we live our lives, in the way that we relate to one another's. You know, we can't go very far in talking about the revelation of the Father without looking at one passage outside of this one that is probably the classic passage, one of the best examples of seeing the Father in Christ. And it's in Colossians chapter one, verse 15. So look with me here as Paul, writing to the Colossians, tells us who Jesus is. He says that he is the image of the invisible God. He's writing to a church just like this. And he's saying this is who Christ is. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by Christ, by him, all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness, hang on to that, to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross through him, I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. What an amazing, potent paragraph written in the words. He is. It's plainly seen that Jesus is God. It's the essence of the gospel, the essence of the good news. If you ever want confirmation that Jesus reveals the Father, there it is. What did he say? He said a few things. He said he is the image of the invisible God. Image, and that's critical to that entire passage. It's the Greek word ikon, for you Greek scholars out there. It's where we get our English word icon. In other words, Jesus is not just a resemblance or a manifestation of God. Jesus himself is the stamp of God. In other words, the word literally means to reveal or to make evidence the invisible God. I don't know about you, but on my phone, I, I brought up here, and uh, people are trying to text me and not Hold on a second. No, just, <laughs> but on the phone, there's all these little apps, right? And what do we call those apps? Icons. And you know that if I press, don't do it now because you're going to look at scores and all that. Don't do it now. But um, if I press one of these behind that icon is everything that program delivers. The icon is the representation of that, but it's all of the power in it. It's a good example of what Jesus is. We see him, and he is the representation of all that God is put into the form of man. This passage says he's, he's the firstborn over all creation. I've had people say to me, aha, there it is. He's created by God. He's the firstborn. But you don't really understand your language if that's the case or the, or the context there. That firstborn has this idea of supremacy, dominion, over all. That's what that means. 
How do you know that? Look what Paul says. He says that Jesus created all things, which infers he was there from the very, very beginning. He's the creator of everything. In him, all those things in this passage in Colossians, they hold together. He is the icon of God, the image, the very image of God, and he is the firstborn, meaning dominion. A third thing this passage says is that God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. I love that Paul chose that word. He could have chose the likeness. He could have chose resemblance. Remember, Paul's a scholar, but he picks this word fullness, which literally means complete, not lacking anything. And now you can see how one paragraph in Scripture just gushes with potency. See, the Colossian people, if you know anything about them, they would say to Paul, well, this is good. Jesus was a good man. He's a way. He's another path to God. But what Paul is saying, no, 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 you don't understand. He's it. There is no other way. Jesus is the way to God. Jesus reveals the Father. And the last thing that we see in this passage is that he claimed right there to be equal with God. Look at the way this is said in John 5, uh, 18. It says, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. You wonder what the, the issue was in the New Testament about the, why Jesus eventually had to go to the cross? It was because of the claim that he had. Not because he was just ticking everybody off or he was a hotshot guy messing with their thing. He claimed to be God. And this would cause the Jews to stir because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, breaking their law, but also calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. That was the controversy in the New Testament. Later on in John 8, Jesus would say this, truly, truly, I say to you before, this is a passage we looked at last week, if you remember. He said, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out on the temple. What is Jesus saying? 2,100 years before uh, to Abraham, Jesus said, I was even before that. That term I am, as Jamie mentioned last week, would point all of them back to Moses and the burning bush where God said, I am that I am. It was the God claim. This is why people wanted to pick up rocks and they wanted to kill him. Have you ever been there in your life? Has anybody ever messed with your belief system? You see, you can't help but live out what you believe. If, if you spend a little bit of time with me today or this afternoon, in very short order, you'd figure out what Neil Montgomery believed. And the same would be if I spent time with you. I would know what you believe. And it's based on your whole system. And when somebody comes in and punches a hole in that, I get defensive. Why? Because I don't want to change the way I've been living my life. It's the same thing. The Jews, particularly the leaders amongst the Jews, had, had worked the law in a way that was serving them. They had living a pretty good life, and now Christ comes and says, I've come to fulfill the law. I'm going to create a new covenant, and I want to follow. And so Philip's question back here in John 14, and you can go to the John 14, 8 passage here. We'll skip over a couple. Philip's basically saying, if you want to change my thinking, Jesus, I want you simply to show me. Philip says to him, show us the Father. That'll be enough. I've been living my life. I've been following this, but you just give me some evidence and I'll make it. Have you ever been there? Just put God in front of me and I'll be good. And so Jesus says, have I been so long with you? Reflecting a little bit of disappointment. I've been hanging out with you. I've been pointing to this all the time. And yet you have not come to know me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And he goes on and he says, do you not believe that I am in the Father 
and the Father is in me. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. It's an honest question. And yet, just like Philip, just like the Jews, if Jesus were to stand right in front of us, probably we'd be inquisitive, probably we'd wonder, is this the, the real deal? And Jesus, right in front of us, many, was, many of us would have a difficult time even believing it. And so Jesus tells Philip, look at me. The Father and I were both the same. That was a tough pill to swallow. And so Jesus says that he is the evidence of the Father. Here's a second thing how the Father is revealed through Jesus, and that is that he claims that his works reveal the Father. Jesus claims in verses 10 and 11 that if my life, and my just saying this is not evidence, look at the works that I have uh, created in you. He goes on in verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. What were the works? Well, Jesus, his whole life was a body of work. There were people that were following him. He taught with authority. He was healing people. He was doing some pretty incredible things that always pointed people to God. In verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, and here's the cool part, he will do also and greater works than these because I go to the Father. What an incredible passage here that is being read. I think that's kind of cool that we're gonna do even greater things here. And I wanna spend the, the last part of our time on the third point. So Jesus says that he is the evidence of God, and then he says that his works are also evidence of the Father. But here's the third thing, and I think it's really powerful, and that is that Jesus predicts that the Father will be revealed through us. And if I'm not mistaken, I think a lot of us miss this. We get the fact that God is revealed in nature. We understand that, of course, I have my Bible. That's how I learn about God. And, and I can see that, as the Bible states, that Jesus is God and that God is revealed through him. But this idea that God is revealed through us, well, that's pretty amazing. But as you look at the word of God and God's design in relating to you, his whole purpose in your whole life is to reveal himself to you. And what's surprising is that he also wants to reveal himself through you. And I think understanding this is gonna help us relate to God in a more meaningful way, not to make life better here, but to allow us to truly be what God designed us to be is his light in the darkness, is carrying a treasure in the earthen vessels of our lives. We will do even greater works. Jesus is gonna go on to say, ask whatever you want in my name. Those are pretty cool things. And I think in the past, we've lifted those from the pages of scripture, put them on mugs, put them on bookmarks, and said, that's a cool verse, I claim that. But it's not a charge card. It's a promise from God. As Jesus said in verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified. Not so that you can say, hey, I'm gonna pray in Jesus' name and God has to do it. So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And, here, and if you love me, you'll keep my commands. Three potent things that are kind of cool, but I think God intended something a little different than sometimes we take it in America. So what does this mean for our lives today? How do we apply this? What does it mean that God wants to reveal himself through us? If you've been here this year, you would know that we've taken the mission at Scottsdale Bible Church and we have sort of repackaged it in a way that we can sort of get handles on it. I love that. I love that we've taken our mission. We said, it really is all about getting God, get real, and 
Three of you remembered that. So that's good. So that's better than what, it was true. So we get God, we get real, and we get out there. And I think sometimes as pastors and staff, we get all excited about the get out there part. You ever notice that? Hey, would you get out there and help serve in our ministries? Would you get out there and, and go into the community and help us bring, and those are all good things. But here's the problem. I think a lot of us get out there without getting God. Did you know what I'm saying? I think a lot of us get out there with not, without getting real with ourselves and with God and just letting everything in our life just fade away, the things that we're striving to get God's attention. God says, my purpose in you is that I love you. I love you, not because of anything that you do, but because you're mine, I created you. You don't have to squirrel around and try to do things to earn my favor, I love you. I'm inviting you to come into my presence, to acknowledge me as your God and abide in me and get me. And don't feel bad because the disciples are sitting right here in John 14 and they're struggling to get it. There's, it stands to reason that we would battle in the same way. And so getting God is all about the foundation to getting out there. And if you don't believe me, just keep reading in John 15 and we're gonna get to that. Jesus is gonna hit this very, very hard. He's gonna come back and he's gonna say 11 times, abide in me, remain in me, the New International Version will say. 11 times for emphasis. You can't do this without my power. God wants to reveal the Father through you, but you can't do it alone. And the result is, as Jamie will talk about next week, because the power of God becomes in us, those of us who put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, will be filled with the Spirit, and now God will reveal himself through us. We literally, quite literally, won't be able to help but get out there. That's an incredible thing. Those of you that are feeling the pressure, like, oh no, I've gotta talk to that person on the airplane, or my neighbor, or the unsaved relative in our family, and we feel this pressure. I don't think God designed it ever to be a pressure. I think God designed you to be so filled with his spirit, so aware of God in you, that you can't help but get out there and share that by your life and not having to force anything. And in so doing, you're doing greater things than Christ himself did. You're gonna do incredible things. You're gonna begin to pray in Jesus' name, not as a charge card, but because you believe in the name of Jesus and the power that is in you and the commands that God gives you, you're gonna be like, this is no problem. I don't see them as commands, but a pathway to living the abiding walk with Jesus. And so this passage, in a very real sense, makes sense now, and we understand it better. You see, God's going to reveal himself. Do you, do you all understand that? Whether we're a part of that or not, God is revealing himself. He will reveal himself, and we have an opportunity to be a part of that, to allow him to reveal himself through us. And sometimes that happens in glorious ways. You know, you're in a service like this, and you're like, I get it. And you have a moment where you pray, and like, I'm gonna receive Christ into my life. And you begin to serve so willingly and worship freely, and it's a beautiful thing. And God is revealing such a beauty through that. But you know that God also reveals himself through the not-so-exciting times, times when maybe you're embarrassed. And you thought, boy, I blew that one. Or times when you're in a very, very, very dark place, and you feel like you've got no control over anything, God is still working. See, here's some really good, good theology for us that's so basic in scripture, but I'm not sure we understand it fully. And that is, the Bible teaches us that God is sovereign. 
That means he is completely in control. He's never not, that's my double negative for you grammar people, he's never not been in control. He has never for once taken his hand off the wheel and decided that you're not important. In fact, look at Psalm 103 here. This tells us again that the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. God is sovereign. That is something that should encourage us. God is in control. So when things are going great, God is in control. When things aren't going great, God is in control. A second thing along with that is that God has a plan. Scripture tells us we can make plans, but it's the Lord's purposes that will prevail. God has a plan. And lastly, he's always working. He's sovereign, he has a plan, and he's always working. He's working right now. As you're sitting here, your mind's wandering, maybe you're thinking about lunch, you're worried about going uh, over to the campus and other places and getting lost and getting on the parking lot. He's, he's working when you're sleeping. He's working all throughout the day. Every moment, God is working, revealing himself. Sometimes we get excited and we get ahead of God like Peter did. I love that example in scripture. Remember Peter, he got so excited about Jesus. He was always saying, man, I'm yours. I'm gonna follow you. He sees Jesus walking on the water. What does he do? I'm gonna get out of the boat. I'm gonna walk on the water with Jesus. And then he begins to sink. We see him when he wants to protect his friend, his master, his king in the garden when he's, Jesus is about to be arrested. And Peter goes for the jugular, but he misses and hits the guy's ear. It wasn't God's purpose yet. And then Peter, at his lowest point, lowest point in time, denies Christ three times after he said he was all in. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been to a place where you're just at the lowest point ever? And you're thinking, how could God love me? And I love that the Bible never throws Peter under the bus. That Jesus never throws his hands up and says, Peter, I am done with you. I'm gonna use somebody else. Why? Because God is sovereign, God had a plan, and God was working in Peter's life, even using those horrific things to bring Peter to a place, the end of himself, where God would begin to reveal himself through Peter, because God had a plan for Peter. And as Peter came to the end, and God began to move, revealing himself, all of a sudden, Peter takes on a new boldness. Read the book of Acts, that's your homework. Acts chapter three, right after Jesus ascended, giving them that great commission. He's going up to the temple to pray. He's got this new boldness. He looks at a guy who's just asking for money. Peter could have just given him money. It's a good thing to help this guy out. He says, silver and gold I don't have for you, but what I give, I have, I'm gonna give to you. Get up and walk. Power of God, the Father revealed through his boldness that Peter has. He would go on a couple chapters later and they would be beaten because they couldn't stop yakking about Jesus and all the things it experienced. And coming out of that, they didn't go, whoa, that was tough. They came out in Acts 5, 41, said, man, we are rejoicing because we got to suffer because of Jesus' name. Even in his own death, Peter comes to that place at the end of his life. His tradition would tell us he was gonna be crucified. He said, I didn't wanna be crucified the way Jesus was. Crucify me upside down, and he did it enthusiastically. What happened between denying Christ three times and having a boldness? God was sovereign. God had, it was working, and God had a plan for Peter's life that even through the rough times, God was always working in his life. I think of King David you know, we never think of King David as a man after his own heart, but if you read his story, when things were going well for David, he kind of forgot God a little bit. He kind of read his press releases. Saul has killed his thousands, but David is 10,000s. He begins to acquire a harem because he enjoys that. His power, his popularity increases. He sees finally a woman that's 
not his own wife, and he takes her, and his life goes in a downward spiral. And yet in Acts chapter 13, we read that he was a man after God's own heart. Why? Because God was sovereign. Because God had a plan for David, and God was always working through all of that, so much so that in Acts 13, 36, it says, David, after he'd served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers, and his body underwent decay. And if that's true for Peter, if that's true for David, and all throughout the Bible, I think the stories are in there, every character in the Bible is the same story. God has a sovereign plan that he's always working to reveal the Father through. And God reveals himself through us. And here it is, when we can no longer reveal ourselves. See, if you're like me, I still like me, and I'm not trying to be funny, I like me a lot. I like my stuff, I like my comfort, and all of that. But God is constantly reminding me that those things are never gonna satisfy. They'll stir up a thirst that nothing in this world, nothing in Scottsdale, nothing at this church per se, is gonna satisfy you other than Christ alone. And the sooner you can get to the end, the Father becomes most revealed when we come to the end of us and see the beginning of him. You begin to see his plan. You begin to see that he was sovereign all along and that his plan was actually better. And so in a very, very real way, a great reminder for us today is that God has a plan for your life. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're sitting there going, really? A plan for your life maybe, but you don't understand my life. My wife left me, my kids hate me, I lost my job and I was diagnosed with cancer. That's very real. I get your prayer requests. They come through, the ones you do on the back of the cards, the ones you put online. We are so great. We have a team of people that pray. In fact, at the end of our service, there'll be people right here ready to pray. If you wanna come forward, people will pray with you. But our prayers and our requests of God reveal an ache in our heart. And I know there are people who are hurting just like that. Or the people that are praying, the husband and wife who said, we've been praying that we would get pregnant and it's been five years and we still can't have a child. Where's God in all of that? God has a plan, for, really God has a plan for my life. What about the prayer requests that come in and people are saying wave after wave of depression just sweeps over me. I, I come, I try to get it, but I just am hanging on and I just can't seem to get it. God has a plan for your life. I get it, it's a well-meaning phrase, but it often falls flat when we're faced with reality. So easy to deliver a monologue up here, but I get it. You may be thinking it doesn't change what I'm in the middle of. And so what's the answer? I think time changes things, God works just in time. I think perspective here that God's plan is to reveal himself to you and through you. See, God's plan was for us to become like that icon, never perfect, but always moving towards it. The sanctification process is gonna take place your whole life. It's a, it's a life of putting off the old, taking on the new, God revealing a little bit more of himself, yes, even through the darkest trials that you are going through. Our problem is that we sometimes look at the Bible and we pull the verses out and we demand that God use that verse to change my circumstance here on earth. And that's just not what God ever said. Sometimes he does that and we can praise him, but God never promised that. He never promised that he would improve our earthly circumstances. We pull verses like Jeremiah 29, 11, and 12, and we love to write it down that says, many are the plans I have for you. You know the verse? Plans to prosper you. And yet right after that, the whole nation of Israel is gonna go into exile. People would be tortured. People would be murdered. And I'm not trying to be morbid, but God was saying, yes, even through that, 
my plan is still intact for you. And the same God that was the God of his nation then is the same God today. God does have a plan for you. And ultimately, that plan is for good. Ultimately, it's a better plan. Some things may happen here on earth, but it was an eternal plan that God is thinking in perspective. We want perfect health. And so we demanded of God, we want perfect relationships. We want suffering to go away. We want, we want control. That's a big illusion in our lives. It's not bad to pray for those things. It's, as Jamie says, it's just don't make it a first thing. It's a second thing. We want pain to stop. We want all of our hopes to be realized. We want a perfect world, and we live long enough and realize it's just not perfect. We live in a very, very broken world. And though there's reflections of a beauty that God created in the garden, and there's shadows of what was and, and, and shadows of what is yet to come in eternity, those are glimpses of God's beauty, God revealing himself in part until he will be fully known. It's not all bad, but the best we have here is only a glimpse of the beauty that awaits us. Even the creation, scripture tells us, cries out for redemption. Leaves fall to the ground, plants die. There's a beauty yet in that. And we too, marred with sin, still reflect and we still are awaiting the beauty of God in our lives. And so with good intentions, we say to one another, God has a plan for your life and it's difficult for our finite minds to grasp in our fallen states. You see, God's plan wasn't some scripted, complicated document that we try to adhere to. You know what it is? God's plan simply in the pages of scripture is for us to be like his son. Stop there. End of story. To be like Jesus. And we have enough of Jesus in John 14 in the pages of the New Testament for us to emulate. It's not gonna be easy. Who was Jesus? Jesus was a man of sorrows. He walked with sinners. He experienced the greatest affliction to take away ours. He lost friends. He writhed in pain. And yet in him our glory is found. His plan was for you for me to be like Jesus and therefore reveal God as Jesus did. He was long-suffering. He was a conduit of grace, mercy, and compassion. He battled and, and emulated self-control in our lives. He, Jesus, is the one who is our hope, hope against all hope. He's the plan. He's our plan, whether or not my health is restored back to normalcy. normalcy. He's the plan, whether or not the parts of me that are still broken fall into place. The hope and future he's speaking of is one that calls us back to him fully, completely, undivided in spite of our suffering. And wherever you are, I apologize as a pastor, sometimes we've made it the pastors are the ones that work for Jesus, but no, 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 no. The laity myth is just that, it's a myth. There's no such thing as laity. God is working in you a sovereign plan that he's working and working and working to reveal himself in the sphere of influence that you have. And our plan is to be more like him and come back to him no matter how far away. You can never get so far this side of heaven you know, from God that he can't bring you back. And if his plan is for us to be like Jesus, then he is our future and he's our hope even in times of dark tribulation because it is there in those dark places that you and I are being made more like him. And it's there that we're fulfilling his plan. As you go through suffering, you know what's happening? We're becoming more like him. As you're waiting on God, you ever try to wait for God in America? We don't like to wait for God. We'll give God five minutes, maybe a week, and then we step in for God. But as you're waiting on God, it can be kind of like watching paint dry. And so it's very tempting to step in. But while you're waiting, you know what's going on? We're becoming more like him. While you're trying to grasp any kind of hope 
waiting for the urgency of heaven to break open. You know what's going on? We're becoming more like him. More like him, that's the plan. More like him to reveal more of the Father through our life. And yes, still pray. Prayers will still be answered. Hopes can become realized. But everything that happens in your life now is in alignment with his plan for us to become more like Jesus. Yes, through our suffering, through our waiting, through our trials, through our tears, through it all. And so we resolve, as the great hymn writer said, that it is well, even when I don't understand. I tremble, but I'm still gonna trust in God. When I'm tired, it is well. When I'm wrung out at two o'clock in the morning with the kids who won't stop crying, or I'm awake and I can't sleep, it is well. It is well when I can't see, it is well because Christ is with me always. The one guarantee he gives us this side of heaven it is well because my eyes are on you, God. Your plan is good because, God, you are the plan. Colossians 3 and Hebrews 12 says, you know, set our minds, fix our eyes on Jesus, keep them on him so that when we read passages like Romans 8, 28, it takes on new meaning and new life. We can agree with Paul that we know God causes all things to work together. Not for our good. The language there is actually more for God's good. And guess what? His good is better than my good. His plan was better all along. And as I abide in him and persevere through trials, I can experience what James says, the joy of that, because I'm seeing God reveal his plan to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Your sorrow and your pain is designed to awaken you to that plan. It was never God's plan to fix everything in our life. God will reveal himself. I can't tell you how many times that God has had to fix the fix that I fixed. You ever been there? You know, in my house, I'll try to fix stuff. I'm wrapping it in duct tape. And then my handyman, my wife, has to come and redo it all. That's a true story. And in our walk with God, it's the same thing. That so often, God has to fix the fixes that we fixed. And he still is patient. You want to get out there, get real with God. I think of Jonah, who was getting real with God in the belly of a great fish. When he came to the end of himself, he's willing to even die and pleaded with God. And God, when he finally came to the end, spewed him out on a beach and said, now go. Smelly, fish-stinking guy, going to bring a great hope of promise. I think of the little band of followers of Jesus throughout the book of Acts who turned the world upside down because God brought them to a place where they trusted him more than they trusted themselves. The apostle Paul, a broken man, in his ministry comes to a place where he says, I am weak, but man, through my weakness, God's strength is perfected. Boy, I think of uh, trying to seek God is not about trying to understand God in a way that we can win a debate, theology in a classroom. Theology is great, knowing God is great, but when we don't understand the purpose of it, we're gonna miss out on how to relate to God and therefore reveal the Father through our lives. I wanna close by just uh, sharing a quote with you that I found uh, from C.S. Lewis. It's a, it's a book called Collected Letters. He's, he's sort of battling with a friend by the name of Barfield, who's kind of a scientist, and, and decided that, you know, I could learn about animals and birds in a book just fine. And I love what C.S. Lewis says. Look up here on the screen. He says, talking of beasts and birds, have you ever noticed this contrast, that when you read a scientific account of any animals, uh, account of any animals, um, in life, you get an impression of a laborious, incessant, almost rational economic activity. But when you study an any animal you know, 
What at once strikes you is their cheerful fatuity, the pointlessness of nearly all they do. So say what you like, Barfield, the world is sillier and better fun than they make out. You know what I mean by that? I'm not trying to be silly at all. Yesterday, my wife and I uh, went for a walk and we were walking down this beautiful road. It wasn't our street, it might've been yours. And all of a sudden, we were surrounded by um, a whole bunch of lovebirds. You ever seen them? I, I don't think they're indigenous to the area, are they? I think somebody, one of you let them out of the cage and I just propagate all over the place. And you know, I've seen lovebirds in books and I've seen the, the books that say, here's the beak, here's the feather, here's the feet, here's the tail, here's the egg. The but you know, we watched these lovebirds. They were beautiful to watch. They're green and they're happy chirping. They were just playing around. It was really fun. It was more fun to watch them frolic around a tree and swinging on branches and fighting each other than it was to read about them in a book. And I think sometimes this is the way that we approach God is that we miss out that God is very real, he's very alive, and he wants to relate to you. And in the words of Jesus to his disciples in John 14, he wants to do greater things through us. He wants us to ask whatever we desire in his name in alignment with his will and to follow his commandments and do that so lovingly in doing so, we go from black and white to technicolor. And we begin to see that the purpose of our life was not to build our own happiness, but to reflect his holiness. In doing so, we find a greater joy and a greater hope than we ever can. From the very least of us in this room to the greatest of us, those of you that are super thrilled with your life and those that are going through the darkest night of your soul, this hope is for you. These words are rich, they're life-changing. Don't waste a moment in keeping God relegated to the pages of a textbook and some theology, which is good, but bring it to life in a God who wants to relate to you and reveal himself through you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time that we've been able to open your word. Thank you for giving us a glimpse of who you are and for your grace and not revealing all of it because that would be wild and difficult in our finiteness. And so we thank you that you're a God who reveals. We thank you that you are a God who is willing to meet us in our darkest place and continue to work out your sovereign plan because you love us. Lord, help us understand that in a new and fresh way today as a church and may it revolutionize us as a body, us as a community, not to make life better here per se, but to help others who don't know you know you in such an enjoyable and rich way. And we will praise you for it in your son's name, amen. Thank you guys, have a good day.